right, you guys can turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. While you're turning there, I do want to really just give a thanks to everyone who helped us out with the country fair this year. Um, We were blown away. We had a horrible front come through right in the middle of setting up. We were sure that it was just going to ruin the country fair, but it didn't. We actually, our attendance was about the same as last year. God did incredible things, brought out tons of visitors despite the storm. We're just so pleased. We're excited to see what he's going to do in the coming weeks and months as those visitors get plugged in. So really, for all of you who gave tents, who gave candy, who gave time, thank you so much for helping us to reach out to the community. We really appreciate that. Well, this morning's message is part two. We, we had to divide this passage, 327 through 425, into two parts. And so I want to begin with a review for those of you who were not here for part one last week. Okay, so let's review real quick. Big idea of Romans is the righteousness of God. God is righteous in all he is and in all he does. Now, uh, that presents a problem for us because God is righteous in judgment, That's the first thing that Paul fleshes out. God is righteous in condemning sin. All sinners, all of us are sinners, and so all of us deserve God's judgment, which is his wrath, his anger poured out upon sin. That's the bad news. The good news is God is not just righteous in judgment, he is also righteous in justification. This is God's solution to our sin problem. Justification is a legal term. It means to declare someone to be in the right, acquitted of all charges. God offers that justification, that declaration of righteousness through the faithfulness of Jesus. It's Jesus being faithful in our place, in life and in death, that gives God the opportunity to justify us. That's God's part in the solution to sin. He gives us justification through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, last week we began to talk about our part. What is required of us to receive that justification? Well, Paul told us very clearly it is faith. What's required of us is faith. And last week we talked about the definition of faith. What is biblical faith? It is conviction that something is true and therefore worthy of your trust. That's what faith is. Now, specifically on this side of the cross, living after the death and resurrection of Jesus, biblical faith is trust in Jesus' death and resurrection as payment of my sins. It's trust in Jesus for eternal life. So our part in this solution, what Paul is telling us is that through faith in Jesus, we are justified. Now, there's really no controversy over any of that. Anyone who calls themselves a Christian is going to agree that faith is important, that faith in Jesus is required for justification. But here's the controversial part. Is faith not only required for justification, but is it sufficient? Is faith alone sufficient for justification? Is faith enough? Is it enough just to trust, just to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead? Or is something else required? Must you add works to the equation? That's where the controversy is. Now, Paul weighs in on that controversy in the summary verse of our passage. We looked at it last week. Look with me, chapter 3, verse 28. Here is Paul's answer to that question. Is faith sufficient? Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart or without works of the law? Paul's answer is yes. Faith alone really is sufficient. Faith and faith only is enough to be justified. Works are not required before, during, or after justification. There's no works that you have to provide. 
Paul actually made the same point a few verses earlier. Look at verse 24. He says that we are being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justification comes as a gift by grace. Grace means to receive something good that you don't deserve. You have not earned it. You have not merited it. Paul is saying that the greatest gift you will ever receive, justification, eternal righteousness in the sight of God, comes as a free gift without any works whatsoever. Well, that's very easy for us to understand, but it's so difficult for us adults to accept. Now, I say adults because it's not difficult for our children to accept. Our children are easy with the idea of receiving things for free. My kids proved this last week. Luke and Gracie turned two, and they received lots and lots of gifts. And uh, as they were given these presents, they received these gifts without hesitation, without pause, without considering what expectations might come along with those gifts. They, they simply received them and they had them unwrapped and were playing with them before you could blink. And, and from that moment on, Luke and Gracie assumed that those gifts belonged to them forever. No matter what they do in the future, those gifts belong to them now. If they misbehaved, if they abused the gift... They weren't going to bring it back to you and say, I'm so sorry, I did not prove worthy of your gift. Take it back. No, it was a gift. It's theirs forever. It's as simple as that. But we adults know better, don't we? What do I do if you offer me something of value for free? Well, first, I'm going to be skeptical. I'm not going to believe it. I've lived too long to believe that you get anything for absolutely free. I know there's no such thing in this world as a free lunch. That's why when the cable company calls and they offer me three months of free channels, I hang up because I know better. I know that those three free months obligate me to a year-long contract where I'll be paying exorbitant fees. They're not giving me channels for free. They're just delaying my bill for three months. There's nothing free in this life. But if it turns out that you really are offering me something of value for free, no strings attached, then how am I going to respond? With guilt. I'm going to feel a little bit guilty that you're giving me something so valuable for free. I'm probably going to pull out my wallet. Surely I, I can pay you a little bit for this. And for sure, next year when this time rolls around again, now I'm going to need to get you a gift of equal value. And if nothing else, I'm going to at least need to treat you really well. I'm going to need to be really nice to you in response to your gift. It is so hard for me just to accept a gift for free. We adults, we can't do that. That's why chapter 3, verse 28 has presented so many problems for the church over the last 2,000 years. Because it is so hard for us to accept something for free. That's what God wants. God wants us to accept justification just like our kids do. Just as a free gift. No consideration, no, no worry about expectations, no pause, no hesitation. Just receive it as a free gift you can never lose. But we just can't do that. We know better. We've got to earn it. We've got to try to merit it. And so for the last 2,000 years, since Paul wrote chapter 3, verse 28, the church has tried to add works back into the equation. 
We just can't believe, we cannot accept that something of such value, justification, would come as a free gift. Surely, we've got to do something. We've got to pay back God in some way. We've got to merit it in some way. We've got to protect this gift in some way. We don't want people to abuse it. So we add works back in. We've been doing it for 2,000 years. The vast majority of Christians add works back in. For Roman Catholics, they add works back in to the front end of justification. Justification is not something you have now in Roman Catholicism. It's something you hope to get in the future. You hope to earn it one day through a lifetime of faith and obedience, specifically obeying the sacraments, participating in the sacraments of the church. Now, we Protestants, we believe that you really have justification now by faith alone, so we add works on the back end. For Arminians, they add works to keep justification. If you don't follow faith with good works, then you lose your justification. For Calvinists, they add works on the back end to prove justification. If you don't follow faith with good works, then you prove you were never saved to begin with. This is what the vast majority of the church does. We add works back in at some point because we just can't believe that it can really be free. But that's a problem. Actually, that, that presents three problems for us in our passage this morning. That's really what Paul is going to do for us this morning. He's not just going to tell us that justification is by faith alone, but he's going to tell us why. Why did God make justification by faith alone? Remember, it's, it's God. God can do anything he wants. He could have designed justification any way he wanted to. He could have made justification by faith plus works. That would make a lot more sense to us because that's how we operate in life. But that's not what God did. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Why did God make the most valuable thing ever given absolutely free? Why does God insist that justification be by faith alone. That's what Paul's going to look at this morning, and he's going to tell us the answer to that question by pointing us to a guy named Abraham. Abraham is the subject of the whole of chapter 4. So let's talk about who is Abraham. Well, he is the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had 12 sons that make up the 12 tribes of Israel. Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation, but even more important than that, Abraham is the recipient of some of the greatest promises ever given by God to anyone. Genesis chapter 12. We meet Abraham when God shows up and makes an incredibly extravagant promise to him. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. These promises, a few chapters later, are formalized into the Abrahamic covenant. That covenant, that covenant of promise, is actually what your whole Bible's built upon. The whole rest of the Bible from this point on is all about God fulfilling these promises and especially the last one. That's really the most important promise anywhere. Through a descendant of Abraham, the world will be blessed. This is God's promise to fix the problem of sin. This is when God stepped into human history and said, you broke my creation, but I'm going to step in and fix it and I'm going to do it through a descendant of Abraham who is actually Jesus. 
Jesus is often called son of Abraham. He is the promised descendant who brings the blessing of justification to the world in fulfillment of this covenant. So Paul looks at Abraham, really, really significant man. Now, why does Paul look at Abraham? What's the point in looking at Abraham? Well, as we look at how Abraham's story unfolds in Scripture and then throughout the rest of Jewish history, we see that in the minds of Jews, Abraham is the paragon of righteousness. Jews believe that there's never been any person who has lived as good a life as Abraham. He lived a a pretty stellar life according to the book of Genesis, but you look at what the Jews wrote about Abraham in the years around Jesus' life, they wrote stuff like this, Jubilee 2310, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Abraham did not sin against thee in the prayer of Manasseh. No one has been found like him in glory. The Jews raised Abraham up. They exalted him to a position of perfection. So Paul is going to point us to Abraham because of this. Here's how the logic works. Imagine that that you sell pickup trucks, big pickup trucks, and you want to show everyone how roomy your pickup trucks are. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to go hire Shaquille O'Neal to come sit in your pickup truck while you take a picture of how roomy it is because your customers know if Shaq can fit, I can fit. If he can fit in there, I can fit in there. Same logic at play in chapter 4. There has never been a person in the eyes of Jews who lived as righteous a life as Abraham. So if anybody could have earned justification through their works in whole or in part, it would have been Abraham. It would have been him. So what did Abraham find? Well, Paul tells us, look at chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What did Abraham find? The one person who maybe could have earned it, what did he find? Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. What Paul is saying is that even for Abraham, this incredibly righteous man, even for him, justification came by faith alone. Apart from any works, Paul makes that explicit in verse 5. Verse 5 is about Abraham. It's saying in God's eyes, Abraham is ungodly. In God's eyes, Abraham's works count for nothing. He gives no works to God. Justification comes by faith alone for Abraham just as it does for us. Now why? That's back to the central question. Why is it that God insists on justification by faith alone, even from a man as righteous as Abraham? Why must it be by faith alone? Paul gives us three answers. First reason why God insists on faith alone is because adding works to faith for justification inflames pride. It inflames pride in the human heart. That's the point of verse 2. Look back at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Boast, it means a a reason for pride, a cause for putting glory in yourself. Paul's point is this, if, if Abraham really was as righteous as the Jews made him out to be, then Abraham has a reason to put pride in himself. He has a reason to boast. He has a reason to say, look at me. Look at the righteousness I earned. Look at the spiritual stud I am. 
If works play any role in our justification, whether to earn it or keep it or prove it, then we give room for pride. If we play any role in our justification, then some of the glory of our salvation belongs to us. I like to illustrate it this way. Think about how a a Mormon would explain justification. And Mormonism, justification works this way. It's like when you were a little kid and you were walking down the street and you saw a store window and this new shiny bike, this bike that you desperately want, but it costs $100. So you run home, you bust open your piggy bank and inside you find $1. That is all you have in the world, $1. So you go to your dad on your knees and you beg, please, dad, get me that bike. So your dad says, give me all you have, this $1. I will add the other 99 and we'll go buy the bike. Well, who does the glory of salvation belong to in Mormonism? Well, most of it belongs to God. Actually, 99% belongs to God, but you still get a solid 1%. 1% of the glory of salvation belongs to you. There's still room for pride. And if I'm a really godly guy and I actually bought 1.1% of my salvation versus your 1%, then I've got you beat. If works play any role in justification, then it gives room for pride. And God is absolutely opposed to that. God will not leave room for pride. God resists pride at every turn because God knows. Pride is actually the root, the cause of all the sin and evil in our world. If you ever wanted to know, where does sin come from? Where does evil come from? Ultimately, pride. Pride creatures put in themselves. Think about the fall of Satan. What led to his fall? Pride. He exalted himself over God. Adam and Eve, what led to their fall? Pride. They were tempted to make themselves out to be like God. Pride is behind every sin, every evil. And so God is absolutely committed to stamp out pride wherever it could grow. And so throughout scripture, you see these amazing examples of how God steps into his world to remove any opportunity for his people to put pride in themselves. I want to show you just a couple examples. Turn to the book of Judges. It's near the beginning of the Bible. Book of Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7 tells us the story of Gideon. Gideon was a man whom God led to be the the leader of Israel during a really tumultuous, really dangerous time for Israel. Israel was being invaded by the Midianites, an army of 135,000 trained soldiers. These Midianites invaded Israel. Gideon gathers the army of the Israelites and comes to make war. And let's see what God does. Judges chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now, therefore, come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Now, pause there for a second. How many Midianites are there? 135,000. How many Israelites? Add that together, 32,000. That's still really bad odds. And God says, Nah. It's too easy for you. I'm going to send two-thirds of them home. Okay, so now we're down to 10,000. This is still, this is, this is horrible odds, and yet God is not done yet. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you. He shall go with you. But every one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you. He shall not go. God is going to test them. He's going to winnow them. How many does he leave? 
300. God leaves Gideon 300 soldiers to face an army of 135,000 soldiers. Now, on the surface of it, this is the worst battle plan that has ever been made. This is a suicide mission. This is a horrible plan. And yet, you know how the story ends. What happens? Gideon wins. His 300 men defeat the Midianites, slaughter tens of thousands of them, and deliver Israel. And what's the result? God gets all the glory. Because there's no other explanation. 300 men cannot defeat an army of 135,000. The glory has to go to God. God is the only explanation. Only because God stepped in and did something could the Israelites be set free. God leaves no room for Israel to have pride in themselves. God's going to do a similar thing during the lifetime of Jesus and his disciples shortly after the death of Jesus. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are taken before the Sanhedrin. That's the the leaders of the Jewish people. There was no one in all of Israel that was as educated and competent as the Sanhedrin. So Peter and John are brought before them, and they are challenged by the Sanhedrin, and Peter and John refute them. They silence the Sanhedrin, and what is the response? Now, as they, the Sanhedrin, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. The end is the clincher. They look at Peter and John and they recognize these are uneducated, untrained fishermen from a nowheresville town in Galilee. And yet here they stand in front of the most educated, powerful men in the entire nation and they are refuting us. There can only be one explanation. Jesus. Their time with Jesus. Jesus must have done something in these guys' lives. Peter and John brought nothing to the table. There was no skill, no ability, no merit on their part that they brought to the table. When God does amazing things through them, the result is that all the glory goes to Jesus. There's no room for glory for them. That's how God operates. God is determined to not leave even an inch in our lives for pride to grow. That's why Paul says, and turning back to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 verse 27, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Law here means principle. Paul is saying that boasting, having pride in ourselves, is eliminated by the principle of faith, the principle that we are justified by faith alone, apart from any works. God eliminates the opportunity for pride by ensuring that justification is by faith alone. This is so important for us to realize and wrap our minds around. There's, there's so many Christians who believe that by adding works back into the equation, either to earn or keep or prove their justification, that they're doing a favor to God. They're honoring God through their good works. They're, they're protecting his grace from abuse. They don't realize they're doing exactly the opposite. By adding works back in, they are stealing glory from God and dishonoring him. Reminds me of when we went to the pumpkin patch with my kids. A college guy brought out a box of these little pumpkins and began to unpack them onto a tarp. And, and Luke and Gracie decided to help him 
And so Luke would grab a pumpkin and put it on the tart, but Gracie didn't quite understand, so she would take a pumpkin and put it back in the box because they they thought that's how this works. Well, invariably, Luke would take his pumpkin out of the box and put it in the wrong place, and Gracie would take the wrong kind of pumpkin and put it back in the box, and the college guy was really nice, and he kind of played and laughed for a little bit, and then he just kind of gave up because this is pointless. This is going nowhere. He walked away. He would come back after we left. I'm reminded of exactly what we do. When we try to add works back into the equation, we are doing God no favors. What we're doing is creating room in our lives for pride. God doesn't need our help. God doesn't want most of the glory of your salvation. He wants all of it. That's why he insists that justification must be by faith alone. That's the first reason. Second reason why God insists that justification is by faith alone is because adding works divides God's family. That's the point that Paul will make in chapter 3, starting in verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Here's what's going on. Paul's looking at a couple types of works in particular. Two specific things that were getting added to faith. That is circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic law. This is what Jewish Christians were tempted to add to faith for their justification because circumcision and the Mosaic law were pretty important to the Jews. God gave these things to the Jews in the Old Testament. They were important. They were very good. Unfortunately, though, when they got added to faith as requirements for justification, these good things became a source of division and disunity within the family of God. Because as soon as you raise up circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic law as requirements to earn, keep, or prove your justification, you instantly divide the family of God into two parts, two groups. Those who are circumcised and keep the law and those who don't. That mentality began to divide the church. Now I want you to turn to Acts chapter 15. A mentality begins to divide the church. The church is broken into first-class citizens and second-class citizens. First-class are circumcised and keep the law. Second-class aren't. If you want to understand what was going on in the early church, think back to when you were in high school. You're in high school. The lunch bell rings. You walk into the cafeteria, and what do you see? You see a room divided, divided into the cool kids' table, uh, full of jocks and cheerleaders and the popular kids, and then all the other tables. Now, you are in the cafeteria simply because you go to that high school. Everybody's in the cafeteria, but you only get a seat at the cool table if you earn it. You've got to live up to their standards of popularity to sit with them. So instantly the cafeteria is divided. That was what was happening in the early church. You had the cool kids table of the Christians who were circumcised and kept the Mosaic law, and then you had everybody else. Well, that begins to divide the church into two because these standards are really hard for Gentiles. Think about Gentiles. Think about a a male Gentile who's not circumcised. Requiring him to be circumcised in an age before anesthesia, that's a really serious requirement. And even if he can stomach that pain, still he's got to put forth monumental effort to learn and practice the Jewish law. That was so difficult that very few Gentiles could step up to that plate. So very quickly, you had a divided church. Jews who were first-class citizens and Gentiles who weren't. God hates that. 
God opposed that. And so he called together the leaders of his church in Acts chapter 15 to answer this issue definitively. Look at chapter 15, verse 5. Here's where the question is raised. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, and direct them to observe the law of Moses. So these guys are saying, okay, the Gentiles, they have begun with faith, that's good. They've started down the road of justification through faith, great job. Now they need to finish the job through circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic law. How does the church respond? Peter gives the definitive answer starting in verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they also. What Peter is saying is justification is by faith alone. It's by grace, a gift. It's not something you earn. Why are you putting the law on their backs? For 1,500 years, we Jews have proven that we can't keep it. So why are we putting it on their backs? That's ridiculous. Peter wants the church to understand in the family of God, there is only one table. In God's house, there is only one table and we're all there on the same basis by grace through faith alone. There is no cool kids table. We're all at the same table on the same basis by grace through faith alone. Now, Paul is going to make a similar case. Look back at Romans chapter 4. Paul says the same thing but proves it by looking at Abraham. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing, justification, then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And it received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them what Paul is saying if there is any Jew who has ever deserved to sit at the cool kids table it was Abraham and yet Abraham what did he find Abraham was justified apart from circumcision by faith alone no works no merit nothing he brought to the table if Abraham is at God's table through faith alone then so are we God raised up Abraham to be an example so that all of us could sit at the same table as one united family of God. So the church answered it definitively 2,000 years ago. Unfortunately, we continue to stumble over this. Every time we divide the family of God based on who meets our standards and who doesn't, whether those standards are about how you look, how you speak, how you act, how you vote, how many Bible studies you go to, how many groups you lead, how often you attend church, whenever we divide the family of God based on whether people meet our standards, we are doing the same thing, and God hates it. God does not ever want his family apart. Wants one family sitting at one table, all here by grace alone, through faith alone. God will never let works get added into the equation because it divides his family. 
That's the second reason why justification must be by faith alone. Here's the final reason. God insists that justification be by faith alone because adding works makes faith useless. Adding works makes faith useless. That's the point that Paul is going to make starting in the next verses in Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but that where there is no law, there also is no violation. Here's what Paul's saying. In verse 13, he actually, he steps back and looks more broadly at the promises of God. Not just the promise of justification, but everything that God had promised to Abraham. The whole covenant. What did Abraham have to do to receive the promises of the covenant? Paul says clearly, faith. Simply trust. All Abraham had to do was simply believe. The promises of God always come through faith. Faith alone. But, verse 14, that faith is made useless when works are added. When works are added to the equation, faith becomes useless and the promise becomes nullified. Let me illustrate it this way. Let me make a promise to you guys. After the sermon, I will give you my car. It's a nice little Honda Civic. It's yours for free. I will give it to anyone who can do two things. After the service, number one, first condition, you've got to come up to me and tell me that you want my car. Condition number two, when you tell me that you want my car, you have to do it while you levitate. You have to levitate at least 10 feet off the ground for at least 10 minutes with no wires, no jetpack, no assistance of any kind. Now, let me ask you, will I be giving my car away today? No. Why? Well, all of you could meet the first condition. Any of you could come tell me that you want my car, but none of you can meet the second condition. No human being can levitate without assistance. And therefore, my promise is meaningless. It means nothing to you. And coming and telling me that you want my car, condition number one, it's useless. Why bother doing that? Because you can't meet the second condition. Paul says so it is with justification. If justification is based on faith plus keeping the law, and as we have proven for thousands of years, no human being can keep the law because the law of God brings wrath, not justification. If no human being can meet the second condition, then the first condition, faith, is useless and the promise is empty. If works are required, if keeping the law is required, then all of us should go home because there is hope for none of us. That's Paul's point. If you add works back into the equation, then you're in trouble. That's the problem for Catholics and Calvinists and Arminians. They try to add works back into the equation. You are justified. You either earn it or keep it or prove it, not only through faith, but also through keeping works, keeping God's law. What's the problem? Well, every time that you go to Scripture and ask, how good do I have to be to keep the law? What good works do I have to be to meet God's standard of the law? How much bad do I have to avoid to meet his standard? What does the Bible always answer? Perfection. That is the only line in the sand you will see in scripture. If you go to the Bible and ask, how good do I have to be to keep God's law? to keep his standard. It is always answered with perfection. And so if you add works in any way to justification, then you lose any basis for confidence. You lose any basis for assurance of your salvation. I see this all the time when I talk to guys who are Calvinists or Arminians. 
They're always wrestling over how good you have to be to keep your salvation. What bad things you have to avoid to, to prevent losing your salvation or prove that you never had it. So they'll, they'll, they'll talk to each other. Okay, well, how good do you have to be? Well, what sins do you have to avoid? Well, maybe you'll lose your salvation or prove you never had it if you committed apostasy. Maybe that's where the bar is. You get, just have to not commit apostasy. That's to publicly deny the faith. Problem, though. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, Paul tells us, the man who does not provide financially for his family has denied the faith, same word, and is worse than an unbeliever. So not only can you not publicly deny the faith, but you have to financially provide for your family for all of your life if you're going to pass that bar. Or, or other guys, they go in a different direction. They say, well, you just have to avoid the really big moral sins like murder or adultery. What's the problem with that? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells us that the person who has hatred towards another is as guilty as the one who murders. The person who has lust in his heart is as guilty as the person who commits adultery. By that standard, if works are required, none of us are going to make it to heaven. If works are added to the equation, whether to earn, keep, or prove my justification, then I don't have hope. I don't have confidence. I don't have security. There's no way I can know I'm saved until I die and can look back at my works. That's a horrible place to live. That's not what God wants for us. God doesn't want us to live in doubt. That's why he tells us in 1 John chapter 5, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know that if you believe in the Son of God, if you believe, if you trust in Jesus, you already have eternal life. Works don't play any role. The only way for this verse to be true is if works don't play any role in our justification, not to earn it, keep it, or prove it. It's by faith alone. By faith alone so that you can know and have confidence in the security of your salvation. Now, none of this means that works aren't important. As the book of Romans unfolds, Paul's going to show us God cares a lot about our good works, but not for justification. They're a result of justification. They're not part of earning it, keeping it, or proving it. God insists that justification be by faith alone because, number one, adding works, either to earn it, keep it, or prove it, leaves room for pride. It dishonors God by inflaming pride within us. Reason number two, it divides the family of God into those who meet the standards and those who don't. And number three, it destroys any basis for confidence or security that we can have in this life. God is absolutely clear about this. He insists that justification is by faith alone. Works play no role before, during, or after. Now, what do we do with that information? How do we apply that? The danger of this passage is it would, it would remain just academic to us, just theologically interesting to us. How do we apply it to our lives? Let me ask you two questions. First of all, first application, have you trusted? Have you trusted alone in Jesus for justification? If you're here this morning and, and you look at your relationship with God and you realize, well, I, I have some faith in Jesus, but I'm also trying to earn it. I'm also trying to earn more of God's love or merit more of God's love or prove God's love through the good things I do for God. I have good news for you. You can stop doing that now. God is giving you his love, eternal life, righteousness, forgiveness for free right now. All you have to do is receive it like my kids open their gifts. Just tear it open. Just have it. It's yours. No strings attached. It's a free gift. Just believe. Just trust. That through death and resurrection, Jesus has provided eternal life for you. 
Now, for those of us who have trusted in that truth, have trusted in the gospel, the second question is for us. What are we boasting in? What is it in life that we take pride in? Now, it's helpful to know, actually, boasting and pride are not bad in God's eyes if they're in the right thing. If you're boasting in the right thing, it's actually good. What is that right thing? Galatians six fourteen. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's okay to boast. It's okay to have pride as long as it's in Jesus. Jeremiah puts it this way. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this that he understands and knows me. So what do you boast in in life? Where does your source in pride as a man or a woman in this world? Is it Jesus? Is it that you know him and that he knows you? Or is it stuff that you bring to the table? Your wisdom, your intelligence, your degree, your career, your influence, your money, your possessions. What is it that you boast in? God is clear. He wants you to boast. He wants you to have pride. But only in one thing. Him that he knows you and that you know him. Is that where your boast is? As you come before God, are you willing to wipe off the table anything you try to bring and simply receive what he freely has for you so that all the glory goes to him, not 99%, but 100%? Are you willing to give him all the glory? Let's pray for his help to do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity. To see in this passage, this amazing truth, why it is that you designed justification to be by faith alone. You didn't have to, God. You're God. You're creator. You could have designed justification however you wanted to. Thank you, Lord, for showing us why it is that it must be by faith alone. Lord, we come before you with open hands. We bring nothing to the table. There is no merit. There is no works. There is nothing that we bring that earns anything from you. All that is good in our lives, Lord, comes from you. You are the source of everything good, Lord. We give you all the glory this morning, 100% of the glory for our salvation. And Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we put pride in ourselves, that we boast in ourselves. We pray that you would forgive us when we trust in what we bring to the table. Help us, Lord, to trust completely in you. Help us to walk by faith. Help us to believe that everything good comes from you, not from us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be faithful in the power of your spirit through your empowerment to take this good news to others. Help us to share with this this town, with this society, with this world that justification, this free gift of eternal righteousness is theirs if they simply believe. They don't have to work for it anymore, Lord. Help us to be faithful to share that good news. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that in grace you have saved us through the faithfulness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that all we have to do is simply receive. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.